I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If there was a Justin Simeon out there in the culture when I was a little boy, it would have been a lot easier to be black and gay in the South. This is Christopher Triumph. I'm back with another one of those fine interviews that you've hopefully grown so fond of. And speaking of which, thanks ever so much for this response after the last episode, the one with Noel Gallagher. Keep it coming. And I hope you know where to find us. If not, check out varvetpod.net. But enough of that now. Time for something completely else. You're listening to Winchester University's only college radio station. Dear white people, the minimum requirement of black friends needed to not seem racist has just been raised to two. Sorry, but your weed man, Tyrone, does not count. Justin Simeon is a young American filmmaker. He was born in Texas, but he's living in L.A. And what you just heard is a sound clip from his first movie, Dear White People. The reception of his movie that premiered in Sundance last year has been rather fantastic and he's also already been given a couple of awards for this movie, both at Sundance and at the San Francisco International Film Festival. And if you want to see this trailer, download the Acast app and you can catch it by a click in the app. And if you're already listening via Acast, congratulations! Anyway, although Justin did have a great debut film, and this is basically what he's famous for so far, the interview that you'll hear in a few moments came to circle around many other things in life, as life, death, faith, and so forth. And if you think there's a lot of background noise, that might have to do with the fact that it's recorded on an extremely hot day in Los Angeles, and we had to open the window. So, time to talk to the wonder child, the filmmaker, the auteur, Justin Simeon. Roll the tape, please. As a sound check, maybe you can tell me how, how jet-lagged you are. I'm very jet-lagged. <laughs> I feel like my soul is just entering my body in, in small doses. <laughs> you just came back from Europe. Mm -hmm. yeah. where, where have you been? Well, we opened the film in Paris, so there was uh, some press and... Uh, a lot of stuff going on in Paris and France for the film. And then I just kind of took a little mini Euro trip. Uh, I went to London for a couple of days and then Amsterdam for a couple of days and got on a plane for a couple of days and now I'm back. <laughs> so was this your first time in Europe? Not the first time in Europe, no. Stockholm was the first time in Europe. But um, first time 
to all of those particular countries. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How did you like it? I liked it very much. I mean, part of it was like I was there to work, so there was like some press to do. And the other part of it was just like getting to the trains on time and making sure that we saw everything and make sure we met up with our friends and all that stuff. So like, it's not like I got to like relax really, but it was cool to see all of these cities that I had never seen before, you know, in person. So yeah. I'd like to go, now. I would like to go back and have a real vacation. <laughs> and which town would you I'd go, I'd go back to London yeah, okay. before I went to but I really enjoyed Paris and I really enjoyed Amsterdam but I would go back to London why is that that's such I, a crappy place I think because is it, you think so <laughs> well yeah but I, I don't know I think because when I when I London feels very familiar and exotic to me like it's You know, it's basically the city that New York was based on, and I feel very at home in New York. So it felt like New York, but a lot more international. It felt like exploring like a, a part of New York I'd never seen before. It's funny with someone who says, like New York, but more international. Yeah, uh, yeah, more so. I mean, because in London, I would literally hear languages, all kinds of languages around me, but like in the same place, everyone talking to each other, whereas in New York... You get the sense that people look different or from different places, and but everyone is mostly speaking English unless you're in certain parts of it. So, for me, it was really like you know being in the melting pot, and the food was great, and I can understand the primary language. So, you know, it was easier, I guess. Yeah. But Paris was gorgeous. I, I felt like I wasn't good enough for Paris. <laughs> How so? Oh, just because it's just so chic. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just so chic. It, it, everyone was very skinny and, and incredibly fashionable and every meal had three or more courses and you know it was just it was such a to-do london was a little more casual and amsterdam was just you know it was amsterdam <laughs> well <laughs> and for the parts of my listeners who haven't been there what's that well i don't know what it is i was only there for two days but you know what it was for me was a lot of drinking and a lot of uh, coffee shops <laughs> which, which means uh, which you know i may or may not have had coffee there and um just kind of ambling around we went to the van gogh museum which was like a piece of culture i must clarify a coffee shop for the people who don't know is a place where you buy weed right well where you can buy weed well but yeah. you know you can also buy coffee that's where where um, justin <laughs> simeon goes to buy his weed <laughs> yeah. When yeah yeah i actually you know I I didn't even I didn't I didn't personally spend any money on the pot marijuana. I got a white coffee, thank you very much. But still there was a lot of stumbling around Amsterdam. It was sort of like it was also at the end of a very long trip. So it was sort of like, you know, it was kind of where I like went to just fall apart a little bit because yep. I'd been gone for for two weeks and it was pretty constant the traveling. We went to Paris where we also went to Roms and it was just I felt like I was on a train or on a very long car ride pretty much every day. And so for Amsterdam I kind of did nothing. We just sort of walked around Amsterdam and ate a lot and yeah. drank a lot. It's a fairly small town. It is very small. Yeah, yeah. The lines for the museums are very long, but the town itself is very small. Yeah. You grew up in Houston, right? Yeah, Houston, yeah. Houston is a fairly big city. Very large and very, like, laid out. Like, it's sort of, it, it's kind of like Los Angeles and that's very compartmentalized. Like, there's different parts of it that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, go between if you live there. But it's a very large, sort of splayed out city and made up of different smaller communities. I have spent a night in Houston, Texas, I was uh, staying at a hotel. I had a fantastic view over IKEA. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that did, that, did that feel familiar? Did it feel comforting to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sure did. <laughs> no, but perhaps that says something about my ability at the time. This was 10 years ago to find a good hotel. Yeah. <laughs> but I assume that was out in the sticks or in the suburbs. Somewhere. Honestly, I don't even know. I mean, the funny thing is I grew up there, but like the way that I process cities as an adult is entirely different than the way I processed a city as a child. So like I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell anybody like where to stay in Houston or like where to go out because I was too young to make any of those decisions when I was there. Like when you're 17 or 16, you're not thinking about like what, what's a nice hotel in Houston. And that was my last time there, really. So, I don't know anyone who knows the best. I mean, if you're living in a city and someone asks you for hotel tips, I mean, that's, that's going like to be a, hard for you. I guess to that's know. true. But I mean, living in Los Angeles, like I could more or less, you know, okay, so what area do you want to live in, and you know, and how much do you want to spend, yeah. and where do you want to go out? And you know, I can more so answer. But in Houston, I have no idea. I know the neighborhood I grew up in, and I knew, I know like where I went to high school and the things I did as a teenager, which I don't think I would do any. You know, like my version of going out was going to you know this Chinese restaurant around the corner from my high school and going to a house party. So I couldn't tell anybody where to go in Houston. Did you have like a false id oh i didn't no i I didn't i was actually a very sheltered good kid in high school so even though i went to performing arts high school where everyone else was sort of engaged in all sorts of things that i you know i didn't even know about at the time i didn't drink until it was legal for me to do so (laughs) except for the except for you know i was raised catholic so if you don't count the mass wine i mean truly like i was a goody goody two-shoes i guess i don't know so you were a good christian I don't know about that, but I was good, and I was raised Catholic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know one person in Sweden who is sort of a... No, two. There are famous Catholics. Okay. I guess I know the difference, but I mean, when you say that you're raised Catholic... Well, I think, you know, being a good Christian probably sounds a certain way to a group of people, whereas being a good Catholic is a little different, because in Catholicism, it is... It's about your, what is it? How did my mom used to call it? Your, your holy days of obligation. So you had certain obligations to the church. Going to mass every Sunday is one of them. Going to confession is another, you know, being confirmed is a piece of it. Doing your stations. Like there's all of these like things that you should do to keep your soul out of purgatory. And, uh, I did some of them, I guess. Like I went to mass every week and i sang in the choir and i was an altar boy for a little bit were you Um, abused i was not abused (laughs) but you know i sort of lost interest i lost interest in being a catholic i'd say probably like halfway through my my teenage years well that's fairly normal to lose interest in everything that you used to do right I, i guess so i mean some things like being a filmmaker I've always wanted, and that just grew. But the and and being a, a, a spiritually seeking person, that never really changed. But I, I I certainly felt disillusioned with being a Catholic. Do you still believe in God? I do, but I guess my definition of God is really broad now. So, for instance, like I, I'll have conversations with agnostics or atheists, and we're pretty much in agreement. <laughs> I just choose to. I think of you know the stuff that we can't explain as ultimately benevolent, and some people choose not to decide what the mystery is, you know. But I guess if I have to put myself in a box, I would say I'm a Buddhist. I'm a practicing Buddhist, but you know, 
I think of God as sort of like the mystery, you know, the stuff that we we have too limited of a point of view to figure out yet. When did uh, Buddhism uh, enter your world? Buddhism entered my world officially right before I made the movie, actually. I actually, you know, I, I had meditated for years, so I guess you could say that it, it started then. You know, meditation sort of derived from Buddhist teachings, uh, at least what we call meditation here in the West. And I, I had meditated for many years, and I, I met a, a woman named Cameron <laughs> Washington, who's a really good friend of mine, who invited me and a friend to a Buddhist meeting. And so to me, you know, Buddhism has all of these different sects and there's Tibetan Buddhism and there's Zen Buddhism and all that stuff. I mean, there's a, a, a popular part of it in the United States called uh, Nichiren's Buddhism. And it's essentially, it's a chanting practice. So you chant, it's the one that Tina Turner did and what's love got to do with it. It's a practice of chanting. And so for me, the step from meditating to chanting was a very small step. And I noticed a big difference in my life when I started doing it. So I've, I've been a practicing Buddhist since then. Do you go to temple? Occasionally, sometimes. It's it's a but it's a personal practice, you know, it's sort of there's no requirements in terms of going any place or doing anything in particular other than the actual practice. I think you are you might be the first Buddhist that I have ever met. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well Richard, You might you might have met them, but they just didn't talk about Richard it. Richard Gere, of course. But oh, okay. no, no, I didn't meet him yet. <laughs> That's fantastic. Congratulations, I guess. I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, you know, it's good for me. Well, the, Buddhism, my preconception of it is that it's sort of a really open religion. And, mm. well, it's perhaps more of a philosophy or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a fine line between a religion and a philosophy because it doesn't really operate in the way that people think of when they hear the word religion. It really does come down to a practice, It's a practice, and uh, there are organizations built around that practice, and sometimes they agree with each other and sometimes they don't, but that's sort of beside the point. This might be a little personal, and if so, please tell me to shut up. But I'm thinking, because when I read up on you, I read somewhere that you came out in mm. Sundance. Oh, uh, yeah. And now I'm thinking... Christianity traditionally has, well, haven't been the best friends of gay people. <laughs> Does this have something to do with something? Maybe. I mean, but the truth is, is there are many different forms, as with any belief system, there are many different forms of Christianity. And I don't think that fundamentally the religion of Christianity is at odds with the idea of homosexuality. It's just that certain groups of Christians, typically the ones that are more popular and the ones that are more vocal, they've decided to interpret these old texts and stories in a certain way. But there are many groups of Christians who don't choose to interpret it that way and i mean for you know there's a there's a concept called open and affirming and there are many christian churches that are open and affirming that perform gay weddings and have gay pastors and gay members so you know i have to say that like i that wasn't necessarily why i did or didn't do anything you know i just i just didn't i wasn't getting my life from being a catholic i wasn't getting any sort of spiritual i guess awakening from the practices that i was taught to do as a catholic and um so i i moved on i guess i, I just kept sort of evolving the different things i did to cope with being a human being uh -huh. <laughs> and landed on buddhism Tell me about your background. What did your parents do when you grew up? 
Well, my father died when I was six. Okay. But when he died, he was kind of a jack of all trades. He was a professor. He had done some radio DJing. He was a carpenter. He really did a lot of things. Why did he die? He died of ALS, actually. Oh. So he died when I was six, and my mother was a counselor at the time. So she worked as a college counselor for kids and um, worked at a variety of different places as I grew up. So there wasn't really a tradition of filmmaking or art or anything like that, unless you count my dad's years as a DJ. <laughs> But I never knew that version of him. You know, okay. I was too young. Were you middle class? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd say we were like lower to mid middle class. I'm not sure why I asked this, even since I'd, I've been in Houston for like 24 hours. Yeah. Perhaps. But <laughs> but which part of Houston did you grow up so in? So we grew up just south of Third Ward. People know Third Ward because of Beyonce. She sort of, you know, mentions it in her music from time to time. Okay. But we were in a part of Houston that people disagree over what to call it. But I, the easiest way to put it in people's heads is we're just a little south of Third Ward. Okay. I was on a street called Yellowstone and sort of across the freeway from the medical center. That's where I grew up. If I want to understand you, what do I need to know about the neighborhood where you mm. grew up? Well, it was, uh, I would say, all black neighborhood. And uh, I remembered, you know, feeling very different from sort of like square one because, you know, the way the school system works is you either go to your neighborhood school or you go to a special school. You, you know, get into a what they call in Houston a magnet program. So since I could remember... What, I was, what is that? Well, a magnet program is like it's a special... I guess, qualification for school so that you, if you get into the school based on whatever the school's sort of specialty is, you can then be bused to that school as opposed to just going to the school in your neighborhood. Okay. So really since as early as I can remember, I was always going outside of my neighborhood for school. And um, I went to Longfellow Elementary School, which is a performing arts elementary school. So I always felt like a part of but kind of separate from my neighborhood. And when I hung out with kids and stuff, it was kids from school Or my family, only occasionally kids from my neighborhood. So I, you know, I talk about sort of being in between the worlds a lot as inspiration for my film, and I think that really began as for me as a kid. Yeah, yeah. How come you chose, or or your parents or mother chose to put you in in well, you know, such a creative? Both of my both of my parents were in a sense educators. You know, my father was a professor, and my mom was a, a counselor. They wanted the best for me in terms of, you know, my education level. So, you know, I think that the, it was just about getting me the best education they could get me that was affordable, frankly, <laughs> you know, without putting me in like a, a private school or something. And uh, Longfellow, you know, I don't really remember exactly what the criteria was, but I think it was just one of a few different schools that we applied to go to. And I think, you know, when I was all of five or six or however old you are, when you go start going to elementary school, I think my mom just asked me, you know, which one do you want to go to? And Longfellow seemed fun. So I went there yeah. and it wasn't, it was performing arts, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like a strict I would ultimately go to performing arts high school, which was very specific and regimented. This was not that. It was sort of it was a regular elementary school, but they also had a really vibrant arts program. And you could sort of decide to, to take on extracurricular things. And I, you know, tried to be in band, and I was terrible. And so I ended up in in music, and I was part of what they call the, the Longfellow Show Choir. Okay. <laughs> and so you know, I would go to school, and I would like be part of this choir sometimes. And I think that was just sort of the beginning of you know what would be a, a life 
sort of in the performing arts, but at the time it was sort of just for fun. It was just to get me into a good school, really. Did you play an in instrument? I tried, but it didn't work out. Okay, <laughs> but if if the, you had to choose one instrument that you oh god, would... I tried to play the clarinet, but okay. I never rehearsed, and I and I just found it more fun and easier to be in the choir. So they gave you a little recorder for like a semester to play things on, but other than that, like it's just you. <laughs> it's okay. just you singing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You said that also uh, earlier that you sort of always wanted to be a filmmaker. Yes. But, but when you say always, de define always. I'd say since maybe nine or ten. Okay. I think the first time it occurred to me that I should start thinking about what I should be when I grew up. Like, I was always kind of conflicted by that question because people would say things like, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a this. And I, even as a kid, I was like, I don't have enough information. <laughs> like, I don't have enough, like, decision-making criteria here to, like, decide definitively what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. And I was just always fascinated by the movies. And I remember I had, like, this um, this toy that I we ultimately I lost, but it was a toy that projected, like, you know, little film strips on the wall. And it was my favorite toy. And... You know, I remember when I would go see the, you know, see Disney movies or whatever you, see, you go get taken to see when you're a kid. I was obsessed with coming home and trying to recreate what I saw. And I wasn't, I also wasn't a very good like renderer in terms of like drawing. Like my drawing ability was pretty bad, but I was constantly drawing. I was constantly making comic books and looking back on it, I was trying to tell stories visually, like, yeah. but I didn't know what that was called. And I literally remember sitting in my living room. And I was watching TV. I don't know what I was watching, but it occurred to me, it just occurred to me, like, it must be someone's job to make this stuff. It's got to be someone's job to make this stuff on TV. Like, that's got to be one person's job. And I didn't know what that was called. But from that moment on, it was just the most exciting thing I thought a person could be. So really from that age like that's what i wanted to do and i was always finding ways to do it with what i had which at the time was you know like a computer with like a really basic powerpoint-ish prototype program on it because it was the early 90s and pieces of paper and i was always drawing and trying to make stuff for people to watch okay cool yeah your father died when you were six mm -hmm. i mean i mean do you have rem memories of him yeah of course yeah yeah i do i remember him I remember a very warm presence, and um, I remember going to his brother's house. He would take me to his brother's house. I remember going to the park with him. I remember general things about him. I remember he had a weak arm, which was never explained to me at the time, but obviously it was the effects of ALS. Of course. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, I, I don't have specific... Memories is more like images, you know, and feelings. I knew a couple with two children, and she died of cancer at the age of 40. This mm. was like two or three years ago, and they had two children. I, I think at the time that the, the older one was six and the younger one was four. And, mm. the, and the younger one was like one month after she passed away. Oh. He was like, where is mommy? Wow. Whereas the six-year-old, right. he, he super understood everything. Yeah, yeah. So I assume that you were old enough to, to grasp that he was gone. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember, I mean, it was the most traumatic day of my life up until that 
point and probably period if yeah. I'm really thinking about of it. Course. But I just remember sort of riding around with a friend of my mom's and I don't remember where we were coming from or what I was, whatever. But obviously my mother was at home trying to figure out how to tell me. I just remembered wondering where she was and why she wasn't with us. And then going back to my, my house and being told that my mother was in her room and being called to the room and going in there and her telling me, your father's passed away. And I remember, I didn't know what passed away meant, but I just knew what she meant. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was devastating. And to this day, it's like a very sort of like devastating memory, you know? And, and to feel that early in life that these forces that you think are going to be around forever can go away, really without any warning, I think very much affected me yeah, and the way course. I saw the world. So you didn't see it coming at all? Nobody told no, you? No, because I, I, I didn't have any way to interpret symptoms of ALS. You of know? course not. And so when my father would go away to the hospital, like, I was too young to think something was wrong. Well, you that's know? something grown yeah. up too, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just sort of piece it together the best you can. Yeah. But no one seemed worried, and I was never prepared for it. So... You know, that, I think that that also sort of like added to how traumatic that was because I just I wasn't prepared for it. I mean, for grown-ups too, it's super hard to comprehend. Yeah, I mean, I was very I actively thought about death all the time as a kid, and the funny thing is, is that and which is possibly why I have such a yearn a spiritual yearning. You know, this question of is there something else? You know, is there more? Because my dad died when I was six. My grandmother, who lived with us, died when I was twelve, and then from that point, it was just every couple years it was an aunt it was an uncle that was dying and you know my mother is the youngest of nine kids and everyone but two are gone so you know growing up death was a pretty constant thing why do your f- family die so much i mean well i mean part well i don't know i mean they're humans yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but part yeah. of it is you know my mother was the youngest of nine so when you're the youngest of nine you know people are old <laughs> like and my yeah, okay. mom had me my mom had me when she was 36 so, okay so by All the right, time then. i'm in the world people are in their 60s and their 70s of course, and yeah. It just is what it is. And, you know, their spouses are dying or they're dying. I mean, it was pretty, it really was like every couple years, somebody that meant something to me was gone. And and now, I mean, not to get morbid, but you're, the, you're asking me these questions. Like when I, you know, became an adult and came to L.A., I had friends die. One of my best friends, Deontay Brown, passed away when I was in my 20s. A good friend from college actually just passed away. It was in the news quite a bit. His name was Harris. Harris Whittles. Harris Whittles, yeah. Fantastic comedian. Yeah. yeah he you're, I, you're about the same age, right? Yeah, he and I went to high school together. Okay. And yeah. so, you know, it is, it's sort of been a constant, I would have to say, like yeah. dealing with death in some way occurs in my world within five years, you know, every five or so years or less. I have friends who are obsessed with death, but I still, I mean, I'm, maybe it's that I've, I'm lucky enough not to have had death that close to me mm, mm-hmm. I never think about that mm. death 
Do you still think about that? Of course. I think, I mean, I have to say, I think we are, I think everyone's obsessed with it. It just manifests in different ways. Okay, maybe I'm too, uh, lack of, uh, lack of. uh, (laughs) Well, you know, it it goes back to the Buddhist thing. It's like life is suffering. Why is life suffering? Because we're constantly clinging to things. Why do we cling to things? Because we're afraid we're going to lose them. Why are we afraid we're going to lose them? Because we know deep down inside that one day it's all over. Mm. Our entire culture civilization is built on trying to cheat death we why do we have buildings why do we have art you know why do we have concepts that last you know for centuries and centuries it's because we're all trying to come up with something that will last <laughs> i think no, not to get cra- you know, not to get crazy in the middle of the day in, in los angeles but i think we're all kind of obsessed in our own way that's interesting because I'm, i've been sort of thinking a lot about you know there's a perhaps that's angst, but there is a hole. I'm pointing towards my my torso here. Mm. There is a hole that's oftentimes reminded. Yeah, I, I think of it quite often. Yeah, and I'm I, I'm trying to sort of fill it with consumption or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know food or stuff. Or, yeah, you of know course, yeah. movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to fill this void in my. What would you call this area? In your my soul. Heart, in your heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. I'm trying to fill it with stuff, and I'm sort of trying to achieve stuff. Yeah, of but course. It, but every time, if I would be you, every time I, I make a movie, so to speak, uh-huh. I just realize that, well, okay, that didn't fill the void I, either, even though I had been working. How are we having this conversation around? This is crazy. <laughs> I love it. No, I mean, yeah, that's it, man. That's what it's... That's what... that's what the Buddha is saying life is suffering means it's like you never have enough life is the the human condition is dissatisfaction Mm. always no matter what it is no matter how much we're in love or how much money we have or how big our house is we always want more we always don't like what we have have you managed to sort of free yourself of that no no I mean I'm definitely in the I'm, I'm just I'm in I'm in process man you know, one of the things about Buddhism, which is interesting, is that you sort of learn to work with your desires. And a very common part of that process is you you fulfill your desires and realize, fuck, I'm still totally unhappy. Yeah. What do I do now? And that's yeah. really when the work starts. And I think that, like, for me, having a film come out, which is a culmination of a lifelong dream, really not having a ton to worry about at this point and having really exciting creative projects in front of me. And um, just having been to Europe. and uh, Touring yeah. Europe, as going to Europe as part of my life, giving a shout-out to Oprah, you know, on uh, the Spirit Awards. Like, these are parts of my life now, getting to hang out with Spike Lee and show my movie to him in his class. And yet, when I go home, I still feel that hole that you talk about. You know, this is why so many artists, I think bad stuff happens to us you know because like you know you kind of want to think that like the more you do your purpose and the more you follow your art and your passion that the happier and more fulfilled you'll be but it's not necessarily true you know i was born to do this it's the only thing i should be doing but that doesn't mean that like it fulfills me i guess in a way that you know i I hoped it would or think that i I don't think it ever will i don't think anything will because you know that's the american dream that's the thing that we all buy into here is that like eventually if you work hard and you achieve all of your goals that you'll be happy Mm. but that i don't think that that's true it's probably not. No, I don't think that Tom Hanks, for instance, or 
opera just because they have one billion dollars or the most magnificent job in the world mm-hmm. or the fan- most fantastic Beverly Hills house. I'm not sure that opera is much happier than you and I. Yeah, I mean, I think she's probably doing all right. (laughs) But Oprah is the kind of person who sort of, and I don't know her on a personal level like that, but she is a kind of person who has dedicated her life to a sort of spiritual quest, probably out of that. She was very successful and very rich very early in her life, and she could have gone a different way with that. You know, how many people do we know aren't with us anymore because they went a different way, Mm. you know, to fill... That God-sized hole is what people in, in, in recovery sometimes call it. You know, she decided to make, you know, spirituality, and some people would say sort of like uh, talk shit about that and, and sort of look down on that part of her career, but I think that's why it's such a big part of her career because she's searching like all of us. I feel like she has figured a couple things out. Well, I'm just going to say might have. I think she's a happy person. Yeah, I don't she know. Might, well, what, she what, seems to be happy. But I, I'm not sure that anyone is happy. <laughs> oh, oh, Jesus, this is getting dark. <laughs> yeah. No, sorry about that. We don't, we don't have to go down that road. No, yeah, but, I'm, I'm, this is refreshing. I'm glad that like you, you haven't asked me, like, when did you think of the movie? Yeah, this is all good. <laughs> this is a good conversation. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm sure we're getting there, but you know. Yeah, I would assume so. Yeah. <laughs> but, but sometimes I'm, I did uh, an interview yesterday with a with an actor named uh, Mark Pellegrino. Mm. I had written, written uh, tons of questions, and one and a half hours in, I was like, I still haven't posed my first question. So, <laughs> so let's, we just went with it, and then it was like, so how's the career going? Good. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your time, man. Yeah. Anyway, now 40 minutes into our conversation, and I have actually asked you a couple of questions. But oh, okay. I, I just want to say one more thing. I would say that Harris Whittles was a genius. Mm-hmm. But I think to be a true comedy genius, or, or it doesn't have to be comedy, of course, but to be a creative genius, I think you have to really be in touch with that holy thing. Mm-hmm. Holy, not holy, yeah. but... Oh well, yeah, like, like a yeah. yeah thing in yourself. Well, you need something to motivate you. <laughs> yeah, and the, the idea that somehow maybe we can fill it up by doing whatever the next biggest thing is, I think, oftentimes is a very motivating factor for artists. But it can be destructive because nothing's big enough. You know, I love the story of Michael Jackson because, I, first of all, I'm obsessed with Michael Jackson, and the reason why is because his life really does articulate that the sort of failure of the American dream in a lot of ways. I mean, this is a black man, black man. Okay, growing up during the civil rights era becomes the biggest star that we ever had and it was never enough you know my favorite story about thriller is after thriller broke every conceivable record known to man they asked him well what do you want to do next do you want to just do like a cover album do you want to just take it easy he's like no bad's gonna sell a hundred million he was like it was it was never enough and it produced all of this great work and he obviously dealt with a lot of tragedy and sadness mm. despite the fact that he was so successful and really achieved the american dream in every possible respect and he had i would assume that his whole if you could like make a photograph of his of the hole in mm. his soul hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I would assume that it was sort of bigger than his Maybe physical... So. For person possible i'm not sure and then the thing but the thing is is that like it gave us thriller and off the yeah. wall and bad and dangerous and it gave us the moonwalk so and we really cherish those things but those things came from pain you know it's interesting like our our sort of like um but if you had to choose between him being alive and not having, him being happy and us not having thriller exactly oh god i don't know i want thriller man because you know i'm an, i'm an american consumer <laughs> and i love the work i love his artistry yeah. i wonder if it's possible to do artistry on that level and not be unhappy yeah. that's actually i'm very curious about that just as a as a person in this earth curious how things work you know like do you get bob fossey without an addiction to barbiturates and uh, smoking and drinking and, and dying of a heart attack too young. Like, mm. do you get Bob Fosse without all that pain? I want to know. I don't know. But you, you seem to take care of yourself. I try, man. Yeah. I'm only on my first film, though. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. Speaking of um, celebrity and fame and success and so forth, I mean, it's been received extremely well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you prepared for that? In some ways, no. Because my best case scenario for the film and how it would be received would be that critically it would be well-received, critically acclaimed, but that some people, some audiences would be divided because my favorite films, that's exactly how it goes down, you know. They're polarizing. Well, you know, if you look at everything that Stanley Kubrick ever made... (laughs) One, if you look at Do the Right Thing. Did you see the uh, Kubrick uh, of course. thing on LACMA? Of course. I live down the street from LACMA. So oh, okay. I was there every weekend watching the films because oh, I wow. rescreened all of his films from the shorts you know, through to Eyes Wide Shut. I was there every weekend. And so when I started getting flack for the movie, when people were challenged by the movie and were upset with me about the movie, I, I did have to have a moment where I reminded myself that's the kind of filmmaker that you want to be. <laughs> yeah, You don't want to be a filmmaker where everyone feels pacified and happy coming out of your film. That's not the, Those aren't the people you look up to. That's not the... That's not the artist that you want to be. So I, it, it did take me a, a moment. And I never really believed the good reviews. Like I never really... I never really took that in. You know, the stuff I take in is the negative stuff. Why is it like that? You you are a Buddhist. You should <laughs> you should be able to sort of deal with both. Well, maybe, you know, 20 years in, I'll figure it out. A year in, I don't know, man. It, it, I just, that's the way my, my mind is oriented. Well, it's like that for everybody. Yeah. You have to have more lunches with Richard Gere, man. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe he's going to point it out to you how yeah. to sort of... No, but it's, it's funny because it doesn't matter if you get like one million positive tweets and one negative still the the negative one is going to 
statement. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And and with a movie like this, where there were so many people who didn't even see the film, but felt completely qualified to rip it apart based on its title, that was really frustrating because I just felt like if I wasn't a black artist talking about black things that wouldn't happen to me you know like i the guy who did stuff white people like which is great it's a great blog great book his humor his sort of like self-racializing of white went so much further than anything i ever did in the movie i never got a sense that he was met with that kind of those kinds of things the kind of tweets that i get mm. you know and and so and the comments that i get and people who just like, you know, go into every, I, I, you know, I wasn't prepared for like the group of people that would go into my IMDb page or go into the Amazon page or the iTunes page and give it one star and, and a negative review just because of the title. Like I wasn't prepared for that. So I just taking in those kinds of things. Yeah, man, it's, it was a process for sure. Yeah. And, and those are the things that I, I hear. I don't, A.O. Scott, you know, saying all of the wonderful things he said about the film that still hasn't really hit me. I remember I walked out of my bathroom and I, and the poster is hung in the hallway in my bathroom and it was like maybe a couple months ago and I saw the poster and it was the first time I really saw the poster and was like, fuck, I made a movie and it exists in the world and it has a poster and that poster is framed and people have copies of it and people have seen it in theaters. They paid money to see it. It was the first time it like really hit me that like it happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And this was like a couple months ago and this, you know, but this how, happened a year, a year and a half ago. You felt happiness, right? I felt, I won't call it happiness, but a sense of completion. Like, like a, a job well done kind of feeling, yeah. you know, like I did that. I wanted to do that and I did it. How long did it last? Oh, seconds. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was like, cause then I was late for something. And so yeah, okay. naturally I have to worry about that. That's, you know, that's the fun of life. <laughs> I think, I think we're all trying to figure out how to make those moments last longer. Yeah. Well, I have to keep in touch. On that, <laughs> I'll I let think. you know how yeah. it goes. <laughs> I think that the movie is released in Sweden by now. I think mm -hmm. it was in yeah. February, in mm -hmm. late February. Right. But for my listeners who haven't uh, seen the film yet, dear white people, could you tell us what you wanted to express with it or explore? To me, it was a it's a study of identity. It's these people whose identity and selves are totally out of balance, and they're trying to find a balance. And I'm talking about that through a black lens, which I think is the part of it that's new, and the part of it that people perhaps don't think about. You know, don't think about how race necessarily affects this identity versus self conflict we all have. But what I'm talking about is universal. You know, which is why I think the movie. If it does connect outside the United States and it feels like it does, that's why. But oh, but it's a you know that's that's what the movie that's what I wanted to explore, and I wanted people to leave the theater feeling a little uncomfortable, and maybe not even be able to articulate why they're uncomfortable. But eventually, over time, get to that. What are the ways in which my identity and myself are maybe a little out of balance? I know that it's been appreciated for its uh, quality and humor and message oh, sure. and so mm -hmm. forth. But have you gotten to talk enough about how visually appealing it is? I've talked about it a little bit. You know, people love to 
say, hey, you know, people are comparing you to Spike Lee or people are comparing you to Wes Anderson. What do you think about that? And that typically is is how I talk about it. You know, it's usually the time of the interview to talk about the visuals. <laughs> but for me, I just part of it is that like you just I just see the world a certain way as I'm writing it. And some of it is conscious decision making. You know, I knew that I felt in my heart that it was a, it was a heightened reality in the same way that a movie like Do the Right Thing or Election is a heightened reality. I knew that I wanted it to feel very written. You know, I was very influenced by like Patty Chiesky and movies like like Network that are at once slice of life and incredibly written. Like it feel like the the style of of acting feels like they just said it, but it's written so fucking well, you can't imagine that someone could just say that off the top of their head. I really like those kind of movies. So I knew that. I knew that about it. I knew that I wanted to make a lot of references in the movie, visual references, both because I thought that that would be interesting, and I thought all of the characters were just sort of making references with their identities and also because I wanted to make cinematic references that people didn't necessarily expect in a black movie or a movie by a black filmmaker about black experiences you know do the right thing blew my mind because not only was it a fantastic film but I thought it it was really honest in the way that it 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 sort of deconstructed racial violence but it's also brilliant because it knows its place in cinematic history it is referencing the french new wave and it is doing things with the camera that people don't expect from a movie about black people or a movie in the inner city and that to me is just as mind-blowing as as anything else in the movie and so you know i wanted to pay homage to that tradition and say yo i'm a black filmmaker i'm talking these my characters are black but i i'm also i know my place in cinema history i'm a storyteller i was born to do this and you know i'm going to reference Barry Lyndon, and I'm going to reference Persona, and I'm going to reference Fritz Lang's Metropolis, because those references are completely relevant to what I'm trying to say thematically, and because you don't think I would. (laughs) you know. And also, you're sort of flexing your intellectual muscles, in a way. And that's just the way I create. I mean, I think that, like, I think we're in a postmodern age. I think most directors tend to piece their films together with references because that's the way I mean we make films so quickly now and we're not in the Hollywood system we don't spend 20 years sort of like working on you know five pictures a year or whatever that pace to sort of develop our own style fast enough I think I think most first directors especially if we're talking about like the great directors that are still alive, still with us, I think you look at their first films and they are sort of pastiches of their influences. That's just the way that we make work now. I know that you've mentioned, I mean, you, you said Persona, that's Bergman, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in what way do, would you say that you uh, sort of are influenced by him? Well, I'm influenced by, first of all, like any auteur voice that feels very specific and has a very specific point of view, I've been influenced by, you know. And for me... Bergman is just particularly the movie persona because I was looking for ways to talk about this conflict between identity and self and he so poetically visually poetically did that with that film in a way that kind of would be unacceptable now like if PT Anderson or somebody made that movie now 
like we wouldn't know what to do with it. Like audiences wouldn't know how to see that film. <laughs> you know what I mean? Critics wouldn't really know how to review it. The Academy certainly wouldn't know what to do with it. But because it was Bergman and we, because it was at time, we know of it as a masterpiece. We think of it that way. We see it in a certain way. And I think I'm just in awe of the fact that he was able to make a career of, of doing that with all of his films, you know. The, the phrase that I, I took from Kubrick is that film should be daring and sincere. And whether it's because of where he was from and the environment that he made movies, but like his films really pushed that on both fronts. They were incredibly sincere films that meant to get at some kind of truth about the human condition. And he just wanted to push the medium of film in ways that like would make us totally uncomfortable now. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I'm, in, I'm in a bit of awe of that, of his ability to, to make a career of doing that. I haven't seen Persona. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> I've seen. See it. Uh, well, I, I guess I should. Yes, I've yeah. seen a f- couple of Bergman movies, but uh, I'm and also the the crazy thing. No, no, it's it's all right. I mean, it's a very it's a little obscure, I think. But like the no, but being Swedish, you sh- yeah, you, you should you should have seen it. If I yeah, saw it, you should have seen yeah. it. Yeah. No, Same. but um, I don't know. I mean, there, it's so funny when you go back and you really watch the masters, you realize how there really is nothing new. Like we really haven't come up with much, mm. <laughs> you know, since since then. So yeah. it's just it, I don't know. These filmmakers are just so fresh and they stay fresh. We're totally separated culturally in, 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 in terms of time. Like, there's something so fresh about the filmmaking. Dear white people, that took you almost like eight years from. Yeah. from it was 2005 I, I wrote the first draft. Okay. So it was 10 years or yeah. nine years. It's or something. 10 years until today, but, you know, yeah. I don't know, eight years, I guess, to the point where the script was in some sort of production cycle. Yeah. Do you know what your next project is going to be? I don't know what the next one's going to be definitively because in this town you just really don't. Timing is not something you can predict, but I've announced a project with Anthony Mackie at Paramount called Make a Wish. And I'm writing, I'm in, you know, various writing stages with a couple other screenplays. And Dear White People as a television show is something I've gotten really excited about, especially as I've been touring with the film and talking to people because there are just so many more stories in these characters and uh, I think it could be a groundbreaking show so I'm sort of pushing those four things plus you know being a first time Sundance filmmaker you kind of get swept up in the game of getting attached to as much as possible yeah. <laughs> and so you know I'm taking all the meetings and I'm going on the water bottle tour and You know, I'm, what's a water, water, water bottle? bottle tour is when you tour all of the offices in Hollywood and, and you get a water bottle from each one. And, okay. but probably not a job, but at least a water bottle. So I'm on that on that tour. And, uh, you know, there's a couple projects that have also caught my fancy that I'm attached to. And who knows if they'll ever happen. But maybe they will. I would assume that you must be sort of having I mean, people must want to work with you since your first movie was such a fantastic piece of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been it's been cool, man. It's been yeah. cool to go into the offices and people know what I've done <laughs> and yeah. know who I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's nice. It's a difference, right? It totally makes a difference. How was Sundance? Sundance was very hectic for me because we were one. I got altitude sickness. 
Like I just told, I just complete my body completely shut down. Oh wow! And wow. two, it was just really overwhelming, man. It was like the first time I was ever screening a thing I made to like a lot of people mm-hmm. and waiting for reviews. Were you sitting in the back? Like, oh yeah, and yeah. and there was like a there was a like a mishap in the first screening at Sundance during our premiere. So it was just all so new, and I didn't know if people were going to hate it or what they were going to say. Now I, I feel like I've been asked everything about the film. And so there's very few scenarios that will shake me. But at the time, I it was really, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if we were going to sell it. If so, for how much? If so, when? You know, and, and all of that is in my mind when I'm like, you know, in Q&As and like talking all this press and it's cold and I'm hungry and I'm tired and I just spent $40 going around the corner because Uber was so expensive. It was just like, it was a lot of stimulus (laughs) for me. (laughs) So I can't say it was fun. I'm grateful to the experience, but it was, it was a lot for me. On your IMDB page, it just says like, if you click like trivia, there's one thing he came out in Sundance (laughs) and uh, can I ask you why well I didn't I mean I wasn't really in the closet but I guess but I, I will say I someone asked me a question and it was about Lionel and why I thought it was important to I forget exactly how it how it was phrased. It was something about like you know what was your sort of like impetus for putting you know a queer character in your film and i just said well i'm a queer character (laughs) okay and there was like applause and all this but it wasn't like to me it wasn't this grand moment i i sort of made a decision that if i was ever a person of note if anyone was ever going to ask me these questions for whatever reason that i was just going to be honest about it and not sort of beat around the bush not delay it not make it a thing because if there was a Justin Simeon out there in the culture when I was a little boy, it would have been a lot easier to be black and gay in the South. You know, it was just it would have been easier if there was a version like me out there doing things, talking about things in the culture. So I never wanted to I never wanted to hide that part of myself or lie about it or sort of like keep it personal because I know that it really does mean something to people like it really really does like the culture tells you what you can't be and if you're not in the culture you assume that you don't belong there and I spent a long time in my life assuming I didn't belong anywhere because I didn't see anything that looked like me or my experiences out there but you know it it really until until I saw do the right thing it was the first time I ever even it even occurred to me that an auteur filmmaker could actually not only be black but tell a story about black people and still make an interesting artistically daring film like that was my first experience with that you know not to say that i didn't see a lot of really good films about black experiences and by black people but spike lee was my first sort of like taste of like that crazy auteur kind of energy but with a black story about your reply to my question that's Mm. a great reason yeah yeah i mean i just i I decided early on like i'm never going to sidestep that question so if someone if if it comes up and it's kind of near i'm just gonna fucking say it you know so that's all it really was it wasn't like this i have an announcement people moment you know (laughs) but i think it sounds good in articles like he came out at sundance you know (laughs) and also in this uh, magnificent interview that we're doing right sure yes absolutely do you think that you will live to see an america without racism 
No, not unless something totally dramatic and crazy and catastrophic happens that completely like, you know, forces us to reconstruct our system. It's so baked into the system at this point. It's just baked in. I mean, that's the thing that like, you know, people who want to talk about reverse racism and all this bullshit. It's like the reason why bigotry and prejudice and racism are three different words is because they mean different things. Racism specifically to the people who study racism is about systemic disadvantage. It's about sort of like the bigotry and the prejudices that are baked into the system, which you can be a willing or unwilling participant in. So we live in a racist society. All of that means is that like, if you're a person of color, if you're not the default, which is white, you're at, you're at certain disadvantages, like statistically speaking. And that's not because someone's like out to get you or because someone's evil or because anyone in the system is particularly a bigot. It's just, that's the way the system works. That's the way it operates. And just sort of like in a, the microcosm of that is me trying to get this movie made. If I were a white filmmaker telling my experience of my life, there are statistically very specific ways in which it would have been a much easier process for me. Now, it's hard to get a movie made for everybody. And I'm not saying it was harder. I'm not going there. I'm just saying that like me telling the story of my college experience as a white person would have been easier. <laughs> it would have been easier to attach meaningful talent. And I say, I use the word meaningful in terms of like what investors would consider meaningful. It would be easier to make a case for the film in terms of the international scene. It would have been a slightly easier road if I had just wanted to make a great movie about white people. <laughs> yeah. And they both would have been hard, but I, I, I faced unique challenges because my cast was black and because I am black and because the story is about black people. But the fact that you've sort of made a Kickstarter project out of it, have you had like people follow you since then? Yeah, yeah. What do you mean follow? Well, like, <laughs> other filmmakers oh, uh, oh. doing similar stuff. or I mean, I think like the idea of using Indiegogo or a Kickstarter or some crowdsourcing platform to make a movie isn't unique to me. But, and I think, honestly, it'll probably be harder for people coming up now because when something works in a certain way, it's hard to get it to work you know, that same way again. And I think like, you know, there was like a, an article that came out about how studios are sort of like, you know, not terribly excited when they get the prospect of inheriting a crowdfunded project and all of this stuff. So I don't know if it's going to work the same way again for the people, but I have seen people be inspired by my film and my story. And what I say is like, you know, don't, when people ask me like, you know, what should I do? It's like, it's not about what I did. It's about the fact that I wasn't willing to take no for an answer. And so because I wasn't willing to stop, things occurred to me to try that maybe aren't like the traditional way to do it. And the same will happen for anybody. I think if you just sort of take that hard stand and say, I'm going to fucking make this no matter what things Mm. will occur to you to try that aren't traditional because an Indiegogo campaign may not work for you. That may not equal the same result as it did for me. I'm curious, as we said before, it it took a really long time for you to finish it. And I've been thinking that movies, I mean, with all the people that you have to sort of involve, because it's really hard to do Mm -hmm. it yourself, Mm -hmm. it's a miracle that not every film is fucked up for some reason. Yeah, no, it's true. There's so many variables. Exactly. Like so many. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many variables. And so... That's why when people ask me, well, what movie's next? Like, I honestly don't know. Like, I know what could be, I know what is supposed to be next, but like, I don't hold my breath for that stuff anymore. Not after Dear White People. I mean, there were so many almost 
chances, you know, where the film could have happened and didn't. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> but I'm thinking now that you have screened it and seen it and yeah. you've sort of put it behind you. Are there flaws in there? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to watch. Okay. You yeah. hate it. I don't hate it. No, <laughs> not, it's not that. It's just that I, first of all, when it was time to make the film, it was all about getting it done in time for Sunday. So everything about the process was rushed. And that's just not the way I, I like to work. And so I wish I could have had more months in the editing room. I wish we could have screened the film at Sundance and then gone back in and tinkered. Why couldn't you? Because the studio liked it as is. And it co- it would cost money to do that. And who's going to pay for it? And why would they pay for it? You know what I mean? Like, you you have a hit movie from Sundance. The studio likes it as is. Let's do it. But then there were things that we just didn't get to do because of time and money and because you just never get everything that you want. And and there were also timing things. You know, I started... The movie comes from a slightly different era than the one that it was released in. And there were elements, especially in terms of, like, the black experience in America, that if I were to write the movie today, which is part of why I think it would be interesting to do a TV show, there are things that I would have put a more, more of an emphasis on, you know. And I, I don't know. I just, like, I think that there's... The process by which a filmmaker makes a film, once the film is shot, like that's a new process. And that part of my process was very short. It was very truncated because we had to get it done in time. And um, and I wish I had more time. That's all. So when I watch it, I always think of things like, oh, fuck. especially now that I hear it playing. I know where the laughs are. I'm just I'm so much more. I'm so sure of what the movie is to an audience now. And when you're editing, you you're never quite sure how the audience is going to receive it. Of course, yeah. But you must have learned a hell of a lot. Uh, oh yeah. For, in, in perspective of, of your uh, next project, at, at a certain point, you just have to sort of like take the lessons to the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. Would you like to recommend something? Everyone should be meditating. <laughs> everyone should try that if they haven't tried it. Yeah. And everyone should watch Barry Jenkins' Medicine for Melancholy if you haven't seen it. And I don't know why that's what I'm recommending, but I've been thinking about him and thinking about how great that film was and uh, how much of a push that film gave me because I was so jealous of him when I saw it. I was like, ah, he's doing that thing I want to do. And it's it's been a while since we had a Barry Jenkins film, so... It sounds like something for all the people with holes in their souls. (laughs) Well, that's what the meditation's for. Okay. The medicine for melancholy, you know, all bets are off. I don't know if you're going to, you know, if it's going to fill the void in your life, but it's a really great film from a filmmaker that people should be talking about more. It might uh, keep us distracted for Maybe for for a little bit, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And who do you think I should interview on my podcast? Oh, have you talked to Ava? No. Oh, you should talk to Ava DuVernay. Okay. Yeah, she's great. Thank you so much for your time. Cool. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great, man. It's going to be super interesting to follow your career. I can't wait to listen. This was like a really wonderful interview. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I tried great. to keep it wonderful. No, it was nice. It was really pleasant. <laughs> Thank you. That Thank makes you. me happy. Yeah. Justin Simeon, such an inspiring person. I loved talking to him. And if you want to follow his future adventures, make sure to follow him on Twitter. He is uh, jsim07, J-S-I-M-07. And go see see his movie, Dear White People. Oh, 
And I almost forgot to mention that we got to use a great space for this interview. It's a place called Auster, and you should check it out if you're in downtown LA or online. Their address is auster.co. A-U-S-T-E-R-E dot C-O. And ours is varvetpod.net. Go check it out. And thank you for listening. Thanks, Lovisa Olsson, the editor. Thanks, Christina Jörling-Biro, the producer. And thanks, Acast, for the distribution. I'm Christopher Triumph. I'm Varvetpod on Twitter. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.